Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, my name is Jamie Younger. I'm an American woman, and I live in Holland. I want to take you back to Thanksgiving Day 2018, when I still lived in New York City. I was taking the subway from my home in Brooklyn um, up to Sloan Kettering, the famous cancer hospital on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Uh, I guess it might have been the 50th time that I had made the trip. I was going there because my husband had been battling cancer for five years, and he had been admitted three days prior. I didn't know it then, but it would be the very last time I'd make the trip. Like I said, it was Thanksgiving Day, and the whole place smelled like turkey. Uh, I guess it was wafting in from the nearby cafeteria. Uh, So I got in the elevator, I went up to the 13th floor, and I walked down this long hallway into the room where my husband was lying in a hospital bed. Uh, It was a shared room, so there was, it was like kind of cramped, and there was this curtain pulled between my husband and the other guy. Uh, I greeted my husband, and then I sat down in this chair that was at the foot of his bed. And something came into me just then. It felt actually like someone was talking to me, or not someone, but just like something said to me, do it now. I took a breath. I maybe sat there for 10, 15 seconds. And then I said to him, I would like your blessing to leave this marriage. I hadn't practiced those lines. I'm really not sure why I said, I would like your blessing to leave this marriage, but it just came out. My husband stared at me with a look of total shock. And there was this long, long pause of silence. And I heard all those hospital monitors beeping and I heard nurses talking in the hallway and we just looked at each other. And then he asks me, have you met someone? And I say, I met someone in Minneapolis who made me realize what I really want. Hey everyone, I'm Pete. Everyone, this is Pete, (laughs) Pete Herkmans. Uh, Pete is the person who I met who made me realize what I really want. So you left your dying husband for me, huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, I'm really glad that we are together, but that must have been so hard. Yeah, of course it was. I mean, what I really wanted to tell my husband then, I, I guess it just felt like impossible to explain. Um, but what I said to him was, I really want a family. You and I could keep trying to do that together, but I've just realized after a lot of thinking that I don't want a family in this situation. I mean, I didn't want a child with him. As he sat there in his thin hospital gown, I imagine that he thought I was unhappy because of his cancer. But the truth was I had been unhappy since the beginning. In the weeks following all of this, I would sleep in the guest bedroom and search for a new apartment. Uh, We would meet with a mediator and officially separate. I had no idea how this one decision was going to change everything. Hi, everybody. Before we continue with this story, we want to introduce ourselves. As you know, I'm Jamie Younger. And I'm Pete Herkmans. And we are the creators of this podcast, Totem. This show is about real stories of meaningful change, about people making a meaningful change in their lives. We're launching this show with our own story. Of course, the rest of Totem will be about other people's stories. Intimate stories of change and revelation, of people following their own truth. And what it takes for people to transform their lives. I want to share what it took for me to transform my own life. Okay. Well, let's get back into the story then. Yeah. So let me take you back one week before I left my husband, when I was in Minneapolis 
where I met Pete. So one week earlier, you went on a trip. Yeah, so I flew from New York City to Minneapolis, and I was going there to attend a five-day intensive training on the art of interviewing. Uh, I make documentaries, so interviewing is a big part of my work. Uh, and the class in Minneapolis seemed really interesting, but it was also pricey. Um, but something told me, not really the responsible part of me, but the intuitive part of me, to just spend the money. I really felt that I needed to go there. Yeah, I actually wanted to go to the same interviewing class. Uh, I saw there was a session happening in London and also one happening in Minneapolis in the U.S. I wanted to go to London because London is so close to my own country, the Netherlands. I'm Dutch, by the way, uh, just in case you haven't heard already <laughs> from my accent. Uh, but anyway, uh, unfortunately, the London class was fully booked. I let the idea rest and went on a holiday. And after the summer, I looked back on the website and it was still fully booked. And just in a split second, I just decided to go for the Minneapolis class. It was much more costly and expensive, but something was telling me I had to do this. So we're there in Minneapolis, and it's a group of only 10 people, people from all around the world, and we're there to learn a new kind of interviewing method. So we're in this living room space, and the teacher has set up a camera to film just one person, and that image is being live-streamed to a big TV in the room in black and white. And one person from the group, one by one, sits in front of the camera. Yeah, so the first exercise was for each person to sit in front of the camera with your eyes closed for a minute or so, and everyone was watching that person on the big TV screen. The teacher asked the person to open their eyes. Yeah, so I'm sitting there in this room full of strangers, and people are going up one by one, and they sit in front of the camera. So Pete gets up and sits in front of the camera. And I'm looking at him on the screen, this big black and white projection of him. And something happens inside of me. Um, Pete opens his eyes, and I am transfixed just like utterly transfixed by this man who I don't know. My whole body is just overtaken by a kind of warm river. And that river is like rushing me into him. I just feel like my legs are being upended and that my feet are like being pulled into him and I'm becoming that river. It was a kind of I don't know, like also buzzing in this most pleasant way. And then it was over. Pete stood up, <laughs> the exercise was over, and someone else gets in front of the camera. And I was sitting there thinking like, what was that? I mean, what the hell just happened? Um, and my body or spirit, I'm not even sure what, answers me and says, you're in love with that man. And then my rational self tells me like, how the hell could you be in love with that man? And then it just stayed there. The knowing. You're in love. Which was a big, big problem. It was, of course, a big problem because I was married. And I wasn't just married. I was married to a man who was battling cancer. I tried throughout that whole day to put the feeling aside. I just told myself every time it came back to me, like, Jamie, this guy is not who you think he is. He's probably annoying or dumb or a player, and you're just making him out to be someone he's not. And then that's when the idea came to me. Okay, Jamie, the best way to get out of this is to go on a walk with him, and once you talk to the guy, you'll see that he is not the great love of your life, not the man you have always wanted— and it'll all be settled. So I asked Pete to go on a walk with me the next morning. Yeah, Jamie sends me this text uh, at 6 in the morning, mind you. I was awake because of my jet lag, I guess. And um, she asked me to go on a walk with her. And I said, yes, let's do it. And let's meet uh, in the lobby near the fireplace. Yeah, so we go on a walk around the lake. And I was sort of, like, determined to find out some crucial information about this dude. Yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes at work, right? <laughs> well, I was. I was like, you know, I'm going to find out something that makes this guy unappealing or unacceptable to me. So I asked him some stuff. Um, do you remember what I asked you? I guess you already had found out that I was divorced because you noticed that I wasn't wearing a wedding ring. Maybe something with my kids. Yeah, I asked you about your children. Um you had been recently divorced, and you were really aware that it had pained them, and that concerned you. 
And the way you told me about them, about your son and your daughter, it moved me so much. Um, I could just tell that you deeply loved them. Yeah. Well, we had decided to walk around this lake, but one round wasn't enough. When we finished, you wanted to walk another round. And then we did the other round. And at the end of the round, we were just standing there at, at at the edge of the lake. The lake was frozen and it was covered with snow. And in the middle of the lake, there was this beautiful dark shape like an a, how do you call that a ufo ufo yeah yeah UFO. it was like a round it almost looked like a ripple effect like yeah. as if like a little alien had landed there or something yeah and we were, we were we were mesmerized by it and then somehow i put my arm around your shoulder and i kissed you on the forehead on the forehead on the forehead <laughs> it was yeah. really sweet and it felt as if we were like travelers on the same journey so i mean basically <laughs> this whole plan that i had was not working. I mean, I was falling more and more in love with Pete, which, of course, let's face it, falling in love feels amazing. But after the walk, I really didn't know what to do. My mind was working against my soul, and my soul was just sitting there, pretty peaceful, not giving an inch. Yeah. And on that same day, that that can happen so much on one day, right? Right. And then we were having dinner at the end of the day with the whole group yeah. sitting at this round table. But we were we were totally into each other and laughing all the time. And, and I was thinking, like, I love to be with this woman. And then I suggested, let's let's go to the, the buffet table, the dessert table. Let's have dessert. And you, you couldn't wait to go with me, right? No. I mean, of course, well, I like dessert, but I also liked you. So, <laughs> but I, and I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to, like, tell you something about how I was feeling. But of course, I also wanted to conceal it. Um, I don't know exactly what I said, but it was something like, on the one hand, I feel this. And on the other hand, I feel this, Um, which apparently confused you because you stopped me and you said, "Um, excuse me, can you just say that from the heart? Yeah, I needed to say that because you were talking in in code language for me. So I needed to say to you, like, can you repeat that from from the heart? But when you said that, like it went straight into me and I look him straight in the eye and I say, I'm madly in love with you. I was kind of stupefied, <laughs> <laughs> just staring at her. I didn't see that one coming. I, I knew Jamie's stories. She had told it in the interview class about her, uh, that she was married and that her husband was suffering from cancer. And to me, that it didn't feel good to make a move um, and so when she told me this, I couldn't say anything more than thank you. Which, yeah, that's what he said. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then after a moment, I said, "Well, let's spend time together then for the coming days." We had three days left, and we did. And we did. So the training in Minneapolis ends on a Sunday, and I fly back to New York. And I fly back to the Netherlands, and we hadn't discussed a plan for seeing each other again. Yeah, but I knew in my heart that I was going to be with Pete again, no doubt in my mind. And I also knew that I didn't want to have some kind of extended affair. So I'm back in New York, and two days later, on a Tuesday, I go with my husband to the oncology hospital, uh, because he's not in good shape. And the doctor informs us that he needs to be in an inpatient facility, probably for a month. Uh, And I asked my doctor if I can speak with him privately. So the two of us step into his office. And I remember we didn't sit down. We were standing up. And I look at his doctor, and I just ask him very plainly, how long does he have to live? And he answered me just as plainly. Jamie, I wish I knew. You know, when I diagnosed him, I expected him to live six months to a year. Now it's been five Really, his case is just out of my prognosis scope. I just don't know. He could live six months, but he could really also live another six years. I should stop here and share something that might not be obvious to everyone. I did truly care for my husband. I loved him. I wasn't in love with him, but for five years, I had been grieving. I had been grieving the possibility of losing him. I had also been grieving the fact that I was losing years of my own life, 
Just so much time had been spent on illness. And I had been living in a kind of constant dilemma. I had married a man who I didn't really truly love. And then that man gets cancer, which makes it really hard to leave. And I want a family of my own, and time is running out, biologically speaking. Meeting Pete had somehow opened me to my inner voice, which was saying, I want to belong. I deserve to belong. And I belong to this person, and he belongs to me. I just had that knowing, and I stayed with that knowing, even though I also knew that it was going to cost me a lot. I was pretty scared to tell most of my friends about any of this. I knew it looked bad. But I finally told my closest friends the whole story of meeting Pete. And I told other friends that I was leaving my marriage so I could hopefully someday become a mom and have a family of my own. And most people just outright judged me. Even though I had expected that reaction, it was still really hard. I got a text from a friend that said, I think what you're doing is amoral. I can't remain friends with you. I was really shocked. I mean, am I a bad person? During the marriage, I thought to myself over and over, look, he has cancer. That trumps everything. You gotta stay. I also thought, I mean, you know marriage is hard. That's the whole for better or for worse line in your marriage vows. I had thought and said those things to myself hundreds of times. I didn't want to betray my husband, and I didn't want to stay unhappy, which I had been for so long during my marriage, long before he was diagnosed. Ultimately, I felt that if I didn't listen to my inner voice, I was betraying myself. And I knew that if I didn't leave my marriage, my love for Pete would have no chance at all. I knew what I had to do. I had to leave my husband, even if some of my closest friends think I'm a bad person, even if that means I'll lose a lot of friendships. I didn't know when I would do it, but as I was sitting in that hospital room, I heard the voice that says, do it now. And I listened to it and leapt. I hadn't discussed a plan with Pete in advance. Yeah, when you called me afterwards and told me what you had done, I was surprised that you had told him in the hospital. I wasn't expecting that. No, I know. But I was really happy. Yeah, me too. Looking back, it might seem crazy for me to make that kind of decision without discussing it with Pete first. But I knew what I had to do, and I just made the decision in the moment. I knew that I had to make that leap, even without a safety net. So from the outside, it looks like I was entering into this whirlwind romantic relationship. Uh, and, I, and I was. But what I didn't realize at the time was that entering into love, like real, real love, also meant telling the truth. I mean, I had always wanted to belong and be loved, but what wasn't included in any previous versions of love that I had had was the whole truth about myself. The parts of my past that I didn't want to look at, um, and I was too scared to reveal to anyone. I should say when you were when you first told me about your childhood, I was shocked actually. Uh, how can one person handle all of this in one life? And I didn't even know the whole truth then. Do you remember what shocked you the most? I guess the way your your mom had treated you as a little girl, putting you up with a with a secret. 
When I was nine years old, my mom told my brother and me that we were going to take a road trip. Our dad wasn't going to come with us. It would just be my mom, my brother, and me. And uh, I remember we packed up our blue minivan with this little cooler, and my mom had made chicken salad sandwiches, and we had soda pop. And, you know, we all got in, in, the, in the van, and then my mom started backing out of the garage. And I was riding shotgun, and I see my dad standing in the driveway, and he looks super upset. And he comes up to my mom's driver's side window, and he says, if you go, you can never come back. My mom didn't say anything, and we just drove away. Did your dad know where you were all going? Well, yeah, I guess he knew where we were all going, but my brother and I didn't. At the time, we were living in Louisiana, and we drove for four days cross-country to Washington State. And when we arrived, we pull up to this tiny, tiny white house. It was actually like the tiniest house I'd ever seen in my life. And my mom tells me that we're there to visit one of your dad's friends. Which couldn't have been further from the truth, right? Right, right. Like, why would your mother drive, what is it, like 3,000 miles to see one of your dad's friends without your dad? Totally. Doesn't make any sense. So the supposed friend of my dad, who is the guy who lives in the tiny white house, let's call him Carl, So Carl lives in the tiny white house, and at some point it's suggested that I go on a walk with Carl. Your dad's friend. Yeah. So we go on this long walk, and I'm thinking while we're on the walk, like, this seems strange. And Carl takes my hand, and he starts holding my hand. And I don't know, it just seemed weird to me. So when we get back from the walk, I go up to my mom, and I say, who is that guy, really? And she looks over at Carl and gives him a look. And the next thing I remember is that my mom and I are sitting on white plastic outdoor chairs, just the two of us, and she starts telling me this story. My mom says, I need to tell you something, Jamie. And she starts telling me that she had an affair with Carl while she was married to my dad, let's call him Paul, and that she got pregnant with me. So this man, Carl, is my biological father. And the dad who's been raising me, Paul, well, the one I thought was my dad, is not my biological father. She continues by telling me that my brother, who's six years old at the time, is also born from an affair that she had with another man. So the dad who had been raising both you and your brother is not the biological father of either of you, right? Right. And if that's not enough secrets to reveal to a nine-year-old, after my mom tells me all of this, she says to me, you can't tell dad, Paul, that I told you this, and you can't tell your brother about his dad. And she says, you know, dad knows that you're not his real child, but he and I made a promise to never tell you about your biological dad. No one knows. And then she says, if you want to hit me, You can, and she, like, opens her arms out wide, and she gives me this chance to punch her. What a strange gesture to say that to a nine-year-old. Well, I I didn't hit her. I just cried. I mean, in that single moment, my mom had entrapped me. I couldn't talk to the only dad that I knew, Paul. I couldn't talk to my brother. I was basically alone within my own family. And that was the beginning of a long series of lies and deception. So when you left on the road trip, your dad, Paul, said to your mom, if you go, you can never come back. But you did come back, though. Yeah, we did come back. And life kind of proceeded as normal, which in my house, normal meant a lot of fighting between my parents. But I was used to that. So did you have any contact with Carl later? Not right away, no. Four years went by without me seeing Carl again. He, he would occasionally send me mail. And then when I was 13, my mom tells me, I'm sending you to see your dad Carl tonight. Like, I mean, it was maybe too crazy to believe, but she was like, I'm putting you on a Greyhound bus tonight, and you're going to go visit him because it's about time he starts raising you. 
So is that what happened? Yeah. Actually, that's exactly what happened. So I go up to my bedroom and I pack a bag. And um, I remember I had a portable CD player and I brought one CD, Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits. <laughs> so I played that like 40 times. How long of a trip is that? Um, with all the stopping and all the bus connections, it took two days. Well, that's a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. It's a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, like, as I'm telling you this, I realize it all sounds so nuts. But to me at the time, it just felt like another instance of my mom, you know, doing something unreasonable, just being mean. And my mom always, always, always got her way. So trying to fight it just would make it worse. So you just had to deal with it, with her crazy plan. I mean, if you can call it a plan, yeah. But after uh, two days in this shitty bus, I arrive Carl was married by that point. So I meet my, I guess, stepmom. And what I remember was that Carl and I went on a walk. And it was snowing. And we walk through the town. Carl holds my hand. And I realize on the walk, wait, this guy is actually my dad. We have the same genes. His mom is my grandma. And I start to feel like, I belong, like, uh, you know, my parents are fighting constantly and my mom's horrible and my dad drinks all the time. But this man, who is my real dad, he's interested in me. He's so nice and he listens and it feels amazing. And I feel seen for the first time in my life. Carl wants to stay in touch and he actually, he sets up a collect call phone number. So I would call him and then he would pay for it and it wouldn't be on my parents' phone bill. Um, Because all of this is still a big secret, right? Nobody knows. So we started talking on the phone nearly every day, well, every night, and we would often talk for an hour or more. Uh, I was 13. I was a freshman in high school. So what do you talk about? Actually, we talk about kind of everything. I mean, what's happening in my school, my friends. Uh, At one point, he encouraged me to become a vegetarian. Uh, We talk about what's happening in my home, my parents and all of their fighting. And did he talk about himself or his life? Uh, yeah, he he was in the military, so he had traveled a lot. And he would tell me about all these places that he had been, like Turkey and Japan and, I don't know, it seemed like everywhere. And he also told me um, what I would think of now as kind of like mature stuff, um, deep life philosophies, but also um, how he and men in his military unit had visited a strip club in Thailand. Uh, I felt kind of cool, I guess, learning about these real-world things. Like, wow, the world is this huge, huge place. And he was spending time introducing me to intriguing things that I just wouldn't be able to access living in this boring, tiny town where I was. So you were building a trusting relationship, a kind of a friendship. Yeah, I mean, actually, he started to feel like my best friend. And where were your parents when you were talking every night on the phone with Carl? Did they know uh, about this secret collect call? Well, no. I mean, of course not. I mean, my dad was drinking, like I said, almost every night. Uh, It was a two-story house. So he was on the bottom floor drinking, especially after he had lost his job. And my bedroom was above that. And my mom was always working. She had two jobs. So it was kind of easy to talk on the phone without anyone noticing. Were you never afraid that someone was going to pick up the phone and discover that you were having those secret phone calls? I did get scared sometimes that that would happen, but they were just so important to me. In what sense? I guess just somebody was interested in me and cared for me, it felt like. I mean, in fact, even though I had all these friends in high school and I was pretty liked and involved in things, I guess it was just that my real dad loving me, it just touched something really deep in me. So you just talked, or did you see each other? Um, We did, actually. Well, he and his wife had moved from Washington to the Midwest, and so he ends up getting this job just about six hours away from where I was living so he could drive and visit and see me occasionally on the weekends. Um... And the first time that it happened, my mom knew. 
which was stressful. And the next time uh, he came, we saw each other in secret. So I didn't tell my mom. Uh, she was working like usual. So it was pretty easy. I just told my dad, like, I'm going to go out with friends. Wait, uh, why didn't you tell her about the visits? Well, Carl suggested that it would be easier, just like less stressful for everyone. I guess I agreed. So what did you guys do when you when he visited? Uh, we would go on these really long walks in the woods, always in this state park that was fairly undiscovered. We just really almost never ran into anyone there. And we would just walk and walk and walk for hours. He often would describe our relationship as magical, like nothing he had ever experienced. And he would hold my hand, which mostly felt, how can I put it, unusual but nice. I knew it was something that boyfriends and girlfriends would do. I remember once we were walking in town and we were holding hands and it was dark out already and a police officer approached us. And the officer asked to speak with me away from my dad. And the officer stepped, like, I don't know, 15 feet away and asked me to come towards him to speak to him privately. And then he asked me, Miss, do you feel safe with this man? And I told him, yes. And then he asks me, who is this man? And I told the officer that he was my dad. I remember the officer asking me one more time, and you're sure that you feel safe? I did feel safe. Um, so it was really easy to tell the officer, honestly, yeah, I feel totally safe. When I was 16, Carl set up and paid for me to have a secret post office box. That way, he could send me mail and gifts without it alarming my parents. When I was 16 or 17, he was sending me a piece of mail every day, like truly. A postcard, sometimes a card card, sometimes a CD or a gift or a book. And it was kind of like I lived in these two worlds, the secret world that I had with Carl and the other world with my school and my friends and my family at home. As time went on, things became really intense between my mom and me. My mom knew that something was up. She felt Carl's influence, but she didn't know where it was coming from or exactly what effect it was having on me. But it slowly started to drive her mad. It made her really suspicious. She even said to me one time, he's brainwashing you. You think he is so wonderful and I'm evil, but I'm not evil. During our nightly calls, Carl often asked me, like, so what kind of crazy stuff did your mom do today? It was a pretty major topic, um, his review of my mom's behavior. He detested her. He did, in fact, occasionally call her evil. So Carl became your confidant? Yeah. And the more upset my mom became, the more it made me run to him. By the time I was a senior in high school, I really could not wait to escape home and move close to him. And I did, with his help. He introduced me to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I applied. I got in. The university was just a few hours from where he and his wife were living. I left home the day, literally the day after I graduated high school, and I moved four states away, and I could finally see him regularly. What I didn't see then was just how much our relationship had developed into something, I don't know, like undefined, this boundaryless bond. Um, I don't know, for example, like Carl told me that I was far more fun than his wife, my stepmom. And I felt really great when he told me that. And he said that I was the best thing that had ever happened to him. And I was like, I feel the same way. You're my hero. Maybe while you've been listening, you've been suspecting something that I just couldn't see then. That I was caught in a spider's web. That all of this fun and magic that my dad had brought into my life was actually a slow, long lead up to sexual abuse. 
and you'd be right. When I was 18, Carl's wife, my stepmom, took a sabbatical. She left Wisconsin and she went to San Francisco for three months. During that time, Carl started to make advances towards me that ultimately led to real sexual abuse that happened on several occasions. I trusted him. I I thought I needed him. And in all the previous years, he had just overwhelmed me with attention, sending cards and gifts, and I just felt unbelievably special. As I look back, I see now that my dad had been grooming me to eventually accept his behavior. It's something all sexual abusers do. They build trust. And to the young person, this all feels like an important, special connection. But their careful actions are manipulations. And through all of his manipulations, and I really hate to say this, I had been made into a willing victim. And that's exactly what he wanted. The abuse was not just sexual abuse. It was the whole programming, the brainwashing, the emotional incest that preceded all of it. He had been keeping me away from boys. I didn't have any sexual experiences. Actually, I hadn't even kissed a boy before the abuse. In all of our years of talking on the phone, he made boys out to be sex-crazed and dangerous. And he had demonized my mom and put me in competition with my stepmom the two main female figures in my life, the two women who I might have gone to if I had been abused by somebody else. When abusers groom their victims, it can take place over a short or a long period of time, from weeks to years. My experience happened over years with the one person who I least expected and I loved the most. When my stepmom returned from San Francisco, the sexual abuse stopped, and it never happened again. What didn't stop, though, was this undefined relationship that we had. Immediately after the abuse, I suppressed the experience. For about a year and a half, I didn't remember any of it. I just had total amnesia. When I was 20, something triggered the memories. I told my very first boyfriend that my dad had sexually abused me. And really strangely, I then told my dad that I had told my boyfriend that he had abused me. And my dad says, if you tell people I abused you, they'll think it was abuse. Wait, I don't get it. He says, if you tell people I abused you, they'll think it was abuse? Yeah. I mean, I guess what he was trying to say was, What happened was not abuse, it was special and magical, but no one else will ever believe that. I mean, that was like a total mind fuck. And the beginning of my confusion. A confusion that lasted for like 20 years. You know, as somebody who is a victim of sexual abuse, there's kind of this expectation that I must have all of these strong feelings about it, like anger or shame or at least sadness. But to tell you the truth, for a really long time, I didn't feel anything. I actually didn't think about what had happened all that much. Really, almost never. And I didn't hate my dad for what he had done. I mean, if anything... I didn't want him to be seen in a bad light. And I didn't want to lose him as my dad or as a friend. So I just never talked about it with anyone because I was scared that they'd think I was crazy. I saw two therapists. Both of them were adamant that I had been abused. And I just could not bear the thought that what I had experienced was really, truly sexual abuse by the one person who I loved the most, who I thought loved me the most. So I just lived my life. I kept interacting with my dad as I always did. The abuse was something I put in a box 
and hoped would never come out. Even though I had locked it away, it was something that followed me my whole life. Here in Holland, where I live now, they have a lot of idiomatic sayings related to ships and sailing because Holland is on the west coast of Europe and it has this legacy of shipbuilding. And they have a saying, alle schepen achter je verbranden. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, alle schepen achter je verbranden. Schepen, right. So that loosely translates to burn all your ships behind you. People use the expression to mean that someone has taken an irreversible course or has done something that can't be easily undone or reversed. But why are we talking about ships all of a sudden? Well, what I'm trying to say is that when I met you, I was willing to burn all of my ships in order to start a new life with you. Almost no one understood why I was doing what I was doing, but I did. I had never felt that someone could handle all of me. And now I feel that for the first time. After I stepped out of my marriage, I decided to permanently move to the Netherlands to be with Pete. Yeah, and we should say that this is just five months after meeting each other. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so I left behind almost everything. My friends, my apartment, a city that I had grown to love. I went through all of my earthly belongings. I sold two-thirds of my clothes. I did keep my pink armchair and my grandmother's set of china and my rather large collection of cookbooks. And I put everything literally on a ship that would arrive five weeks later. And then I took a taxi to JFK airport and boarded a plane to Amsterdam. In the beginning, it was so exciting. I mean, everything felt romantic. I was living in Europe. They had windmills. I arrived in Europe, tulip season. And one month later, I was pregnant. And Pete and I were like over the moon excited. We really were. I already had two children from my first marriage, but I was so happy with us having a baby too. Yeah, it was just like an insanely happy time. But there was still so much that was inside the box that I had stowed away. When our daughter was six months old, I finally had to open up Pandora's box and face the one thing I never wanted to face. Somehow, from the beginning of our relationship, I noticed you were having pretty intense phone calls with your dad, especially when we had some fight or tension, and then you always called your dad. There was something about it, secret almost. I found that odd. And when I asked you about it, then you were defensive or aggressive. It almost seemed like you were discussing things about our relationship behind my back that didn't feel good. It was some kind of a strange friendship with him. It worried me. Why did it worry you? Mm, Because I, I felt that there was something that you didn't tell me that you weren't telling me. Yeah, well, I I couldn't imagine telling anyone about what had happened, especially you, the man that I wanted to be with. I didn't want to lie, but I didn't want to tell you the truth. So I tried to hide it. But somehow you just knew that something wasn't right. And you asked me at some point, did anything ever happen between you and your dad? And when he asked me that, I felt for a moment either my life is over right now. Or maybe this is the beginning. I really didn't know which one it was. I was terrified that you would leave me, that you would never be able to see me in the same way again, that you would think I was some kind of messed up, perverted person. But I said, yes, something happened. He sexually abused me when I was 18. Yeah, when you told me that, it felt as the whole foundation under our relationship collapsed in a single moment. I almost literally, like, puked up my guts. At the moment when Jamie told me, I wished that I had never met her, actually. 
just to make it go away, the, this, this unbearable pain. It felt as if someone had broken into our house, in, into the sacred space of our marriage, actually. And, or even worse, maybe, that the burglar had been hiding there all the time. It made me so angry. I was out of my mind. I felt deceived and lied to. But did you feel betrayed by me or by my dad? It's hard to say. I felt very angry with you because you never told me and, and you introduced me to him like nothing was wrong. And I was very angry with him, with your dad, that he had so much influence over you that you just did what he wanted. I was utterly shocked that I had met her dad in person and that he had been acting as Mr. Nice Guy to me. I was furious that he had damaged his child for the sake of his own needs. He had somehow programmed her to keep the secret. For me it was clear this man cannot be in our lives. He has to leave and never get in touch with Jamie, me or our daughter again ever. No more special friendship, no more secrets. The abuse had lasted too long. It has to stop here. I told Jamie she had to break with her dad to save our marriage. For me, it was much more complicated. I didn't want to break off the relationship with my dad. I started to see that it had been abuse, really, truly abuse, but I also felt that I had been loved. And it took me a really long time to see the manipulations, that the whole thing that had felt special had really been an illusion. We were in a very different position. I felt a very primal need to protect my family. I was willing to break our marriage if you couldn't break with your dad. We had upended our entire lives to be together. And then this. Pete had put down a boundary which felt like enormous pressure to do something that I didn't feel ready to do, to let go of my dad. But I wasn't willing to lose Pete, my great love, and the family that we had just created together through our daughter. As I started to look back with clearer eyes at what had happened, when I was nine, when I was 13, when I was 18, I saw a girl who had been wanting love searching for love, hoping for love, first from her parents and then from the world. And it really broke my heart to see how everything had played out. But somehow, I was here. I was with a loving man, and I was the mother to a beautiful child. So I gathered all of my courage and I decided to take my life back for myself, for my marriage, for my daughter. I called my dad and I told him that I knew the truth, that what had happened between us hadn't been magical, it hadn't been special, that he had abused me. And you know what? He admitted it. At the end of the call, I told him I didn't want him in my life anymore. I hung up, and we have never spoken since. I finally broke with him. I really wish that I could tell you that everything was lovely and easy after that, but it wasn't. And it still isn't. It's been a kind of um, unraveling of an old me which has left me feeling really lost at times. It sort of feels like I've been holding back my grief with a huge wall. It wasn't until I started working on this episode for this show that I really let any grief in at all. In the process of making this story, I finally accepted that what my father did was abuse I knew that in my head, but now it's really sinking into my body and my heart. I was locked inside a story for almost 40 years, 
And now, in sharing my story, I break the lock. I finally create a way out for myself. I don't have to hide. I don't have to protect my dad any longer. I use the story instead of the story using me. I'm holding on to my own truth as a totem, a guide that will lead me into the life I want. And with that, we want to welcome you to Totem, our new podcast. We started the show with our story, but we have so many more incredible stories of meaningful change to share with you. It was something like 17 of my bones. I crushed my pelvis and broke my neck and broke my arm and my shoulder and my ribs. I started to feel like I was being treated unfairly by whoever. But, you know, I still didn't make the connection that when you're in bad situations all the time, there's only one common denominator, and that is me. Everyone was angry with me and upset that I was making a huge mistake in my life. But when I hung up the phones and closed the computer and was sitting in that apartment alone, I had a very sort of secured feeling in my gut and in my heart that I had made the right decision, even though a lot of people said it was wrong. Traditionally, totems were carved or painted palm-sized figurines that you could put in your pocket or keep somewhere special. Totems are sacred objects, something to remind a person of their deepest self. And that's what we hope this show Totem becomes for you, something you can hold on to in a moment of uncertainty and transformation. If you know about an incredible story that's just perfect for Totem, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at totemthepodcast.com. Please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really dig what we're doing, we invite you to become a fan of the show on Patreon. It's the platform where we share all the juicy, fun, meaty extras that make Totem more than only a podcast. Yeah, for example, Totem guests share videos from their amazing range of lives. Yeah, and they share letters that listeners write to them, and much more. Because it's about your actual life, not just listening to a podcast. But definitely listen to the podcast. Just follow the link in our show notes. We want to say a huge thanks to our early show supporters and sponsors. We really could not have created this show without the support of Amanda Whiteman, Susan and Paul LaRosa, Barbara Oliveira, Gemma and Sasha Lewis, John Earl, and Dean De Boer. We also want to say thank you to our monthly patrons on Patreon. They believe in us from the very start. Yes. This episode was produced by us and edited by the fantastic Caroline Hadilaksano. Our theme music is composed by the talented Luz Nolten. Our sound engineer is the generous Ruben Landman at Omroep Ede here in Holland. Thanks for being with us for this very first episode. Stay tuned. Stay tuned and join us on the journey.